today, like I said, we're starting a, a series on Advent. You know, this, this, this season of Advent is a time where we, we wait with expectancy and, and remember the hope that we have in God. Uh, like I said, primarily through Jesus coming to earth as Emmanuel, God with us. And so over the next couple weeks, we're going through this thing. It's called a time for hope. And we believe this is a season of hope, but we also believe that in our world, in our context, uh, everybody could use a little bit of hope. I don't know if you feel like I do, but I feel like the world that we live in is constantly in a, in a state of unrest. There's political turmoil. People are fighting. People are, you know, being murdered. And, and, and so there is, in my mind, a reason to preach hope to one another and to look into the Gospels to find hope during this season in particular. And so we're going to be looking at uh, some ancient writings, like I said, through uh, some guys who are called prophets, uh, primarily Jeremiah and Isaiah. Uh, these were men who were, who were sent to speak prophetically, to almost be pastors to the people, the children of God, to Israel and to Judah we're going to talk about today. Uh, these were men who were empowered by the Spirit of God with, with revelation, with kind of distinct knowledge different than, than maybe the people had, and they were sent to speak this uh, over the people of God. And so uh, we're going to be in Isaiah 61 today. So if you have a copy of the scriptures and you want to turn there, you can go to Isaiah 61. You can look on your phone or tablet, whatever you got. If you don't have a Bible, we have a couple extras in the back there. Feel free to grab that. You can take those. They're yours if you want them. Um, so we're going to be looking at Isaiah 61. It's in the Old Testament, kind of, know, let's say about halfway through uh, your Bible, if you have one there in paper. And so we're going to be looking at Isaiah, and I think it's important to understand a little bit of the context uh, in which Isaiah found himself and the, the world that he was born into and the world that he was speaking prophetically to. Uh, Isaiah uh, received these revelations from God to encourage, to exhort, to warn even the people of God about their, their actions, about the state of their heart before God, and to, to warn them to, to make sure that they were following God and not idols or anything else. And, and in particular, Isaiah was called to minister to the people of Judah, um, which we'll get into that in a, in a second, but Judah was, was the people of God. Um, there was Israel and there was Judah, and it's important to know that the, the people of, of Israel, the, the children of Israel, had left Egypt. They went through the Exodus. They traveled they, through the desert. They go into the promised with Joshua, they, and they start to set up a kingdom there. And, and when they set up a kingdom in the promised land of Canaan, they have Saul as one of their kings, and then King David, and then David's son, Solomon. And, and so they start to have this kingdom on earth. They have a king, and under Solomon, they build this elaborate, beautiful temple covered in gold and fancy wood, and there's all this, this ritual that goes along with it, and they're worshiping God in, eventually in the capital city of Jerusalem, which is in the southern part of the kingdom in Judah. So what happens, though, is shortly after Solomon's reign, when he dies, there ends up being a fight for the throne, and, and the, the kingdom of Israel splits in two. And part of it goes to the north, where the majority of the tribes of Israel go to the north, and it's called Israel, and they have their own capital city. The southern kingdom is called Judah, and it has its capital city of Jerusalem. I mean, this is, it's called Zion in places in Scripture. I mean, this is the place to be, and it's where the temple is that they had built. So there's, there's all this, this emphasis on Judah, Jerusalem, and then the temple. And so there's two different kingdoms that have formed, um, and, and they're... Before this, though, they were really living in their glory days. I mean, this was the, the zenith of the kingdom of Israel. It's unified, it's great, and then they split in two, and they end up having two different 
kingdoms. And in chapters 1 to 39 of Isaiah, so I'd say that's sort of the first half of the book of Isaiah, he is warning the kings of Judah. So he's in the and and he's warning the people of Judah, and he's warning the kings of Judah to not worship idols, to not give their authority away to, to other gods. He's warning them to to only worship God, to love their neighbors, to not make what he would call alliances with other countries. He's saying, don't, don't go to Egypt for help. Don't go to Syria for help. You just trust in God to be your defender, to be your protector. And he warns again and again not to do that. But what happens during Isaiah's ministry is that the kingdom of Assyria starts to become very powerful in, in the, the Middle Eastern region. And Assyria ends up becoming, uh, their territory went all the way from modern-day Turkey to Saudi Arabia, down even into Egypt. It's this huge, powerful kingdom in the earth. And they start threatening these smaller kingdoms of Judah and of Israel. So they end up come knocking on Israel's door, and Israel is scrambling. They're, They're making alliances with all these other countries. They're trying to figure out how to bribe Assyria to keep them away. And eventually, Assyria crushes them and carries them away. And so Israel gets destroyed. Now, Judah is left all by itself. It's this small little kingdom with the capital city of Jerusalem and the temple, and and they're left there alone. And and Isaiah is warning them, do not make alliances like Israel did. Do not try to give your authority away. Don't worship idols like they did. Stay true to God, the covenant God of Abraham who loves you and is for you and will protect you. Don't move away from worshiping them. But he's also warning them to to not, I don't know, I don't know how to say it, to just not give their authority away, to not worship these other things. And so what ends up happening is Assyria comes knocking on their door too. And King Hezekiah, you can read about this in some of the Old Testament books as well, King Hezekiah does not move away from worshiping God. He stays true to worshiping the covenant God of Israel. And it says that, that Assyria never did get into Jerusalem that Jerusalem stayed intact through this whole attack by the Assyrians. But what happens after this is, is amazing. They have this great, what I maybe call it a victory, where they don't give in to the siege of Assyria. And then they move back into complacency. They start, they start worshiping other things. They start worshiping idols. It says that they start sacrificing their children to these other gods. It says that they're doing all these, this, having this ritual purity, doing all these, these ritual religious things, but they were socially wicked. So it's like they would, they would go to temple and they would do these sacrifices and then they would deal unjustly with their neighbors. They would recite these special prayers and, and do these things from their heritage, but then they would lie and steal and cheat. They would go to the temple and they would give money to make sure that the temple was, was kept up, but then they would worship idols on Tuesday. And, and, and Isaiah is pointing out to them, this doesn't make sense. You're doing these ritual things but you're not living in a socially pure way. You're not actually living out the law of love and the law of the covenant. <clears throat> and so he's encouraging them again and again, don't do this. Go back and worship the covenant God. But they don't. So eventually God removes his hand of protection from them and from Judah and from Jerusalem and from the temple. And, and this new kingdom called Babylon comes knocking on their doors. And they cave. 
They fall, and Babylon carries them away. This is what you see King Nebuchadnezzar, if you read the book of Daniel, he carries away Daniel and some other uh, kind of uh, rulers of the day, and, and they carry these people away. They carry the artifacts from the temple away. They destroy the temple. So Judah's destroyed, Israel's destroyed, the temple is destroyed, the artifacts are gone, the Ark of the Covenant's gone. Like, this is just totally detrimental for the people. And they're left carried off into another land, living away from everything that they knew. And so for 70 years, they end up in exile until a new king rises up, a new kingdom comes up, and Cyrus, king of Persia, releases the Israelites and says, go back home. Go back home. You can go back and rebuild your temple. You can go back and worship your gods. You, you know, go ahead and do that. And it's an interesting thing for them because they return to their homeland. Their, their villages are destroyed their temple's destroyed. The artifacts are gone. And Cyrus says, yeah, go ahead. You can worship your God. We'll worship ours. You worship yours. It's all fine. And the people are left wondering, what happened? Did God break his covenant with us? I mean, we're supposed to be his special people. And he, he abandons us and we get carted off by, by Babylon. We were, we were God's people, right? By blood. Like we were, we were Jews by blood. We have this heritage and God was supposed to protect us left wondering, how in the world did this happen? And at the same time, they're surrounded by a culture of, of syncretism that says, you worship your God, we'll worship ours, everything's fine. Relative, whatever, whatever works for you. It doesn't sound a little bit like our, like, you do your thing, we'll do ours, it's all fine, like, just, it's fine. And, and so they're surrounded by this kind of relativism, they, they don't know what happened, and, and it seemed like maybe their God had been beaten by other gods, and that's why they lost. Maybe this was a tribal thing. So they have no king, no kingdom, no temple, no hope. They're just bereft. There's, there's nothing there. So they're home. They're back home in their homeland, but it's not right. It's not whole. It's not the shalom of God, the peace of God that he had promised. And so what they had to wrestle with was whether or not they could put their hope back in the God that, it, that Isaiah had been telling them to. And what we find in the second half of Isaiah, in chapters 4 6, is this prophetic writing to that returned group of people, encouraging them that though you've undergone judgment, the blessing of God is still available to you. You can still hope in him. But they had to, to wake up and realize that, that they, they needed a rescuer, that they couldn't do this on their own. They couldn't bring about covenant righteousness and achieve God's blessing. They had to come to terms with this, that they didn't need just rescue from outside invaders. They needed to rescue from themselves, that they were part of the problem. They were a threat to themselves, that they couldn't keep the covenant. They were actually the sinful one, that righteousness, and there was no hope for a cure. Where would their hope come from? And so, I don't know, I don't know about you, but for me, I have felt like this, where I feel like, okay, I, I'm a Christ follower, Right? I feel like I, I have a relationship with God, but there, there are times where I do feel hopeless. Right? You feel like, wh- where is God in this? Have I been abandoned? Have I not done what's right? Have I lost God's blessing? This feeling that I just can't get it right. Uh, I can't stop worshiping at, at the idol of lust or pride. I can't stop making alliances with other things or other people, trying to get them to give me my protection, my self-worth. And I know I'm a Christ follower. I know I've been but I look around and think, really? Like, is this as good as it gets? Or I've worked in jobs where I've thought, 
is this it? Like, this is my purpose? Like, this is what I'm doing with my life? Or I find myself thinking, am I really still this jacked up? Am I really still this messed up after years of going to church, years of reading my Bible, years of memorizing scripture, years of prayer? Like, I'm still this messed up inside? We need hope because it is not inside of us to bring rescue. It has to come from outside. And so I think Isaiah speaks to this. And I know it's a long way to set it up, but I think you need to understand a little bit of what Judah was going who Isaiah is speaking to. And I think he brings encouragement into our situations, into our, our hopelessness, into our need for rescue. And he says that God does bring rescue. God does bring hope. And he, and he calls it full life. This is what it looks like to be rescued by God. And it's not something that comes from our hard work, from our religion, from our rituals, from our, even our heritage. It comes from the gospel which is what we go after here every week, is preaching that it only comes from the gospel. So I want to read this passage to you and with you from Isaiah 61. If you have a copy of the scriptures, uh, you can look at it there. This is what Isaiah says to, to the people of Judah. This is sort of post-exile. They've been returned to the land. And this is what he prophetically says to them. He says, The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is on me, because the Lord has anointed me to preach good news to the poor, He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives, and release from darkness for the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, which is this idea of jubilee, this freedom of of deaths that comes. He says, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn and to provide for those who grieve in Zion, to bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes the oil of gladness instead of mourning, and a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. Uh, They will be called oaks of righteousness, a planting of the Lord for the display of his splendor. They will rebuild the ancient ruins and restore the places long devastated. They will renew the ruined cities that have been devastated for generations. Uh, Aliens or foreigners will shepherd your flocks, foreigners will work your fields and your vineyards, and you will be called priests of the Lord. You will be named ministers of our God. You will feed on the wealth of nations, and in their riches you will boast. Instead of their shame, my people will receive a double portion. And instead of disgrace, they will rejoice in their inheritance. And so they will inherit a double portion in their land, and everlasting joy will be theirs. For I, the Lord, love justice. I hate robbery and iniquity. In my faithfulness, I will reward them and make an everlasting covenant with them. Their descendants will be known among the nations and their offspring among the peoples. All who see them will acknowledge that they are a people the Lord has blessed. I delight greatly in the Lord. My soul rejoices in my God, for he has clothed me with garments of salvation and arrayed me in a robe of righteousness. As a bridegroom adorns his head like a priest, and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels, for as the soil makes the sprout come up and a garden causes seeds to grow, so the sovereign Lord will make righteousness and praise spring up before all the nations. It's a long passage. I encourage you to maybe read it this week, meditate on this, think about what God is saying, the promises that he's offering. But I want to point out just a few things that I see in the way that God is trying to, to give hope to these returns. Three reasons that they can put their hope back in the covenant God. There's three things I see here. The first is priesthood. All right, now this word priest can mean a lot of different things to different people. But what he is telling them in verse 6, he says, I'm going to call them priests of the Lord, ministers of our God. He's saying you have a purpose. 
He's calling Judah and saying, you have a purpose, and it's to represent me to the world around you. And he's giving them this purpose. And this goes back to what I would say is kind of the Mosaic covenant, the covenant that God gives Moses back in Deuteronomy, and says, you're going to be a priesthood to the nations. The people are going to represent me to the world. This is what it means to be a priest, in my understanding, is to, is to be an inter, you know, intercede between God and man. And so what he's promising them is he's saying, look, you're going to get to do this again. You're going to have the purpose of representing me to the world around you, to go and intercede for people, to pray for people, to, to bring the love of God to man and represent man to God and, and to ultimately point them to God's hope. God's love. This is, this is bringing up for them this idea of Moses and the goodness of God to Moses and the promise to Moses that the people would have this purpose in their lives. The second thing uh, he points out in verse 7 is he says that they're going to have this, this inheritance. They're going to have this, instead of shame, instead of the embarrassment of coming back with their tail between their legs, he's saying you're going to have a double portion. Now, if, if you know anything of, of Old Testament history or you were here when we talked about the prodigal son, when he says you're going to have a double portion, he's saying you're getting what the older brother gets. Despite the fact that you're the rebellious younger brother, you're going to get the double portion, what the older brother deserves. And he says in verse 9 that other people are going to see how blessed you are and they're going to realize this is God at work. This is not anything you did. This was God working for you and blessing you and caring for you. What he's saying is God's going to provide for you. Like moving into the promised land again, God will give you everything that you need for life and for godliness. So they have this purpose of being priestly. They have this provision of God caring for them and giving them this this double portion of inheritance. And he's saying, you're going to represent me to the world. They're going to see this, and it's like a light to the Gentiles. This is, this is out of the Abrahamic covenant now, that, that they're going to be a light to the Gentiles, and the, world are going to, the world's going to see this, and they're going to see the goodness of God. And finally, I see that, that Isaiah's promising them that, that their hope can be in the fact that God is going to give them covenant righteousness. Now, this might not seem like a big deal, but this is really what they needed to be part of God's plan on earth. In verse 8, look what he says here. He says, For I, the Lord, I love justice. I hate robbery and iniquity. In my faithfulness, I will reward them. Now, they have been unfaithful. They have had plenty of iniquity. They have been doing plenty of unjust things. And God says, I'm going to reward them, but not with punishment. He says, I'm going to reward them with my faithfulness, with an everlasting covenant. So we see again and again and again in the Old Testament is that when we don't deserve it, God comes to humanity and says, I will fulfill the covenant. I will fulfill the covenant. I will bless you with righteousness. I will bestow this upon you even though you don't deserve it. And in verse 3, I want you to catch this one word here. In verse 3, he says, you know, I've come to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, the day of vengeance of God, to comfort those who mourn. He says, I'm going to bestow on them all these things. And then he says, they will be called oaks of righteousness. He says, they will be called oaks of righteousness. Now, here's this dirty, sinful people that's been carted off and has come back again, and and God says through Isaiah, I'm going to make you oaks of righteousness. This word oak in Hebrew, it's really fascinating. It's, It's a word that came to mean strength, but it also means a ram, as in like a sheep with horns, like this this male animal of strength. And if you look back through the Old Testament, you see it used again and again to symbolize, or the word, to represent the sacrificed animal. So in some ways, he's saying, 
I'm going to make you strong like an oak tree, strong with righteousness that comes up from inside. I'm going to plant you and make this happen. But he's using a word that also has connections to, to, to valor and strength and even to the sacrifice of Abraham that he offered on, on behalf instead of Isaac. It's an interesting thing happening there, which I think comes in later. And what he says at the end of the chapter is that I'm going to make this sprout come up. I'm going to make these seeds come up out of the ground that produce righteousness and praise. This, this language of, of planting, of making something, something sprout up, goes all the way back to the covenant that he gave David. He said, I'm going to plant my people in the land, and everyone's going to see it happen. So what he's telling them is that this is the covenant that I gave to Moses, to Abraham, to David. I'm going to do it in you and through you, and I'm going to make you a a tree of righteousness. I'm going to make this thing come up from inside of you. I'm planting new things. I'm growing new things. This is all, in my mind, language of Eden. This goes all the way back to the garden, that God was planting this thing, and he wanted to see his people living with the purpose of being image bearers to the world around them. He wanted to see them living with all of his provision, everything that they needed. And he wanted to see them living as plants of righteousness, of this this wholeness in God, and to have this relationship with them that gives them full life. And in this passage, Isaiah is promising them that despite their idolatry and their sin, despite their hypocrisy of ritual righteousness on one day, and then their injustice and social wickedness on another, that despite in all of that, God's still going to cause them He's still going to make them this this oak of righteousness. That God is the rescuer of mankind. It's nothing that they could bring about from within them. If it were, they wouldn't be in this situation. But they had to come to terms with this again and again. That God wants to make them strong despite their weakness. He wants to make them righteous despite their iniquity. And he wants them to represent his glory to the world around them. To be a light to the Gentiles. This is what it means to be living in the kingdom of God. Friends, in my understanding and in my life, what I found is the fullness of life and what we're hoping for is found when we live in and for the kingdom of God. But what the family of God was experiencing in this situation was like in this post-exile existence for them and what I was bringing to their attention again and again, they were actually part of the problem. That they... They weren't living in the full life of God. They weren't living in their hearts in the kingdom of God. That their, their ritual hypocrisy was actually keeping them alive. Their sin was blinding them to their need. That their selfishness and their lack of justice was actually leading to slavery. That it wasn't leading to freedom and righteousness. That hope had to come from outside of them to bring this to them. But they could not see, they would not admit that they were at bottom that they couldn't do it. Um, when, when I was a kid, I had a yo-yo, and uh, it glowed in the dark, which I don't know why, but it did. And I remember, like, do you remember this with, like, glow-in-the-dark things? You put it over a light and try to make it really glow. And Anyway, I had this yo-yo, and I remember that it, maybe, if you haven't played with a yo-yo in a long time, let's think about the basic mechanics of this, right? Is that when you would throw the yo-yo down, if you tried to pull it up too soon, It'd get all messed up and there wouldn't be enough momentum. If you let it go all the way down to the bottom and did nothing, it would try to come up on its own and then it would fall back down again. You needed to time it just right that when it hit the bottom, you pulled it back up. And uh, if you ever tried to yo-yo in the dark, like you can't 
really do it because you can't see when it's at the bottom. Like you have to know, even with the glow in the dark one, it was like, you know, hitting me and everything. Like it, it, you had to know when it was at the bottom. It's a silly analogy, but I think what Isaiah is trying to tell the people over and over again is like, would you admit that you're at the bottom and allow God to pull you up? But they like, would not see the bottom. Like they didn't want to see that they, they needed to get there, that God was bringing judgment on them so they could actually get to the bottom and be pulled back up. And they refused to admit it, though. And so for 400 years after Isaiah, the people refused to admit that they were at the bottom, refused to admit that they were part of the problem, and they kept trying to live these ritually righteous lives. They tried to rebuild the temple. They tried to get a king on the throne, but they're still living with other uh, outside forces coming in, putting their own kings on the throne, and they're stuck trying to really hard to live for God, but still living unjust lives the rest of the week. Like, it was always part of the problem, is that ritually they would do these things, but inside they were totally unclean. And they were waiting for somebody to come who would deliver them, but they were waiting for somebody to come who would tell them that they'd done everything right. They were waiting for a savior to come who would say, you've done everything right, now I reward you and I will crush your enemies. They were waiting for the day of God's vengeance to come and say, yeah, you've done a great job, I'm going to kill all your enemies now. Like this is what they were waiting for. And it's into that world that we see Jesus come onto the scene. I'm going to read this to you. In Luke 4, in Jesus' kind of, one of his first public ministries, we see Luke say again and again in different ways that Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, Jesus with the power of the Spirit on him, he comes into Nazareth. Now, Nazareth was his hometown. For those of you who might be younger, this is not Nazareth, Pennsylvania. This is Nazareth in Israel, uh, in Palestine, and in a Palestinian area. And he says, he went to Nazareth. Okay, so Jesus goes into his hometown where he had been brought up. And on the Sabbath day, he went into the synagogue, as was his custom. So he's going to a a religious ceremony. He stood up to read. The scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is on me. So now he's reading Isaiah 61. He says, The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind and to release the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he he rolled up the scroll. He gave it back to the attendant and he sat down, meaning it's done. That's what that symbolically means. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him and he began by saying, he begins teaching by saying, today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. All spoke well of him and were amazed at his gracious words that came from his lips. Isn't this Joseph's son, they asked? This funny little questioning starts to come in at the end. So Jesus, full of the Spirit, says, The Spirit's upon me. I've come to preach good news to the poor, proclaim freedom for the captives, sight to the blind. Today this is fulfilled in your hearing. He's a a, a new Isaiah come to declare good news to the people to come and and set the captives free. He's saying the hope you've been waiting for for the last 400 years is here today. It has come into your presence, and this passage gets fulfilled now in your midst. And the people, oh, this is amazing. They're overcome by the grace of his words. They they see his authority, and then then they they say, wait a minute, are you Joseph's son? Like, are you from around here? Didn't you work at S-Rock? Like, didn't you? Like, I... Mm, no, 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 I don't know. And I think part of what's behind that is that he, ad- he omitted 
part of Isaiah 61. If you look back and you compare what Isaiah says in 61, where he says all these great things, proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, going to do these great things in your midst. Uh, He says, Isaiah says, and bring the day of God's vengeance. This is what Isaiah, this is what Israel's been waiting for. All right, you're going to do all these good things and you're going to bring the vengeance. And Jesus says, today this has been fulfilled in your midst. But he doesn't say anything about vengeance. He doesn't say anything about crushing the Romans. He doesn't say anything about crushing Israel's enemies. He's not even really saying anything about rewarding their righteousness. He's saying, I'm fulfilling this. I'm doing this thing in your midst today. And the people, I can tell, they start, you can read it. They start questioning him. And he goes on from there to say some fascinating things. And I think Luke included this on purpose. I think Jesus said it on purpose. He says, you know, back in Elijah's day, when Elijah was another prophet, he says, there were plenty of widows in Israel. There were plenty of, of, of wives who had lost their husbands. But who did Elijah go to to heal? A widow at Zarephath in Sidon, someone outside of the people of God. And he says, and what about Elisha? What did Elisha do? When there was disease in the land, did he go to Israel and heal them? No, he went to Naaman, the Syrian, their enemy outside of Israel, and he healed them. Now the people are so ticked because he's in their midst saying, this is fulfilled in your midst. I'm not declaring a day of vengeance. Guess what? God has always done and always been in this business of bringing a rescue for all. It's a rescue beyond just the borders of Israel, beyond just the bloodline of Israel, the heritage of Israel. It's for everyone, including your enemies. And the people are so angry with him that they they run him out of the building, out of the synagogue. They run him to the edge of a cliff and they attempt to throw him off. And somehow Jesus, through the Spirit, I believe, weasels his way back through the crowd and he gets away, only to face death later. The people are furious that God would say that his hope and his rescue are actually beyond just their ritual observance of religion. And that it's beyond just their bloodline. It's beyond their heritage. I've always gone to synagogue. I'm a good... He says, no, no, no. This is actually for Naaman the Syrian. This is actually for the widow at Zarephath. This is for all. This is a rescuer for all. The hope has come for all people. And instead, they take a position of moral superiority and they want to exclude others. And what we see is that eventually the people kill Jesus. Right? The religious Jews of the day and the Romans who were under the threat of their authority you know, be, being taken away, they, they kill Jesus for, for loving, for healing, for speaking forgiveness over people that in their eyes didn't deserve it. Friends, can I say that we're all in that camp? Like, none of us deserve it. None of us are bloodline Jews. I mean, maybe you are, but I don't think so. Like, none of us have that heritage can earn this. None of us can do enough ritual things. Like, we are impure inside, and Jesus came for all of us. And what we see, if you read through the scriptures, you see that Jesus ends up on a tree. That Jesus ends up on the cross. He ends up on a tree so that all who call on him can become the oaks of righteousness that Isaiah promised. He is the sacrificial ram so that we can become this oak of righteousness. He's the the and faithful Israel. Adam became Abraham, became Israel, became Jesus. He is the true fulfillment of what true Israel should look like. And he lives it out as a faithful priest for God so that we can become priests for God. It's this crazy exchange. Jesus, so the, old, the, the righteous older brother who deserved the double portion, gives all of it up so that instead of our shame, we get the double portion. We get 
the inheritance of God. We get the kingdom of God now and forever. Forever, Jesus, who, who deserved to live in splendor, who deserved to have all praise poured on him by his disciples and followers, instead, his disciples fall asleep while he's in the garden. And he ends up in despair, alone, facing the cross by himself. And all we see is that Jesus takes the vengeance of God. That day of vengeance that Israel so badly wanted for their enemies, Jesus takes it on himself and says, I will take God's wrath, I will take God's vengeance so that you can live in righteousness, so that you can go on from here and live in the fullness of life in the kingdom of God. That is what our hope is in. It's not anything that we can do. It's in what God does through Jesus on our behalf. This is what our hope is in this season. Now, we are living in what I'd say is a post-exile existence. If you are a Christ follower, you've been outside of the kingdom and God has brought us in through Jesus into the kingdom, but it's still not quite home, right? Like we still look forward to the day when God will remake the earth. And for now, we live in this post-exile existence. So what's our hope? What is our hope? Well, I would say a couple things based off of what I see in Isaiah is that our best life, I believe, is found in living as image bearers of God, living this priestly life life. This is our garden existence. This is what we were supposed to do in the first place. We find fullness of life by taking God's image and reflecting him to the world around us. And so when I say be a priesthood, I don't mean like black, white collar. Like I mean like actually like just representing God to the world around us. And in that we find the fullness of life. So if you want to know what your purpose is uh, when you go to your job that you can't stand or you got a boss that's irritating or you got a deadline that's due, there's a bigger picture there. That you get to live as an image bearer of God and find the fullness of life there despite what's happening in that environment. It doesn't mean you don't do it well. We still do it well, but, but part of it is a bigger picture of being able to share with folks around us. Like, this is what it means to have hope in Jesus. There's always a bigger vocation there in our lives. Our double portion, our double portion, I don't think is physical blessing all the time. I think it means getting to live in the fullness of the kingdom. Some of us, many of us are very materially blessed Some people aren't. This still has to be true in the slums of Nairobi, right? So it can't necessarily mean physical blessing. It has to mean something bigger than that, something more ethereal than that. I think it's living in the kingdom of God, trusting in God's provision, trusting that everything we have is from him and it's for my good and for his glory and getting to share it with the world around me and trust that he will continue to pour it on me so that I can turn it right back around for his praise and to give it to the world around me. That is full life. And I think ultimately... The best part and the hope that we have in Jesus is that we get to be righteous. Not self-righteous, not anything that I've done inside of myself, but we get to live righteous lives. We get to live in relationship with God. And I would say only in the last couple of years have I really started to grasp that full life is found in living the righteous life that the Spirit gives to us, uh, meaning having self-restraint instead of yelling at my kids when I really want to. Like, we've been there, right? And finding that, like, oh, there's fullness of life in, some that, in, in that somehow. Instead of having rage and flying off the handle, there's full life in having peace and having the fruit of the Spirit in that. Our hope is that there's, there's full life found in having pure eyes instead of lust. There's hope in that for us. And it's nothing that we do. It's God working through his spirit to help us obey, to help us live 
righteous lives. But I can promise you that it is the full life that Isaiah was promising the children of Israel that God ended up bringing through the person of Jesus on our behalf. And he bestows righteousness on us and says, now go live in this. Go live in the freedom of God, the freedom of the gospel to be a priestly nation living in the provision of God and with the peace and the righteousness of God. Friends, this is our hope this season. It's not in anything we do. It's not in anything we bring about. It's all in God working through Jesus. So what we look forward to and we celebrate today and we look forward to for this month is the coming of Jesus on our behalf. This is what our hope is. This is, this is why it is a time for hope now and forever. Would you pray with me?